So welcome to part three of Signs. This is a series where we are looking through some of the highlights from the New Testament book of John. And in case you didn't know, the book of John was written by the Apostle John toward the end of the first century. He was the last remaining OG disciple, the last original disciple of Jesus still alive. And he was noticing from the people in his generations that many people were beginning to wonder and doubt, could this Jesus of Nazareth really be God with us? And people were, people were rightfully skeptical of what was being told. And so John wanted to record one final book. And he wrote this book and he basically told people, the reason I'm writing this is so that you may believe that Jesus really is God with us. And when you believe that, it changes everything. So the backbone of his book, it's really interesting. As you look at the main thread that goes all the way through his book, it was really written around seven miracles that John recorded about Jesus. And John was, would, would tell you there were several others that he could write. In fact, if he had all the books and all the ink in the world, he would gladly record them all. But John said, I'm gonna pick these seven because these seven miracles that Jesus did tell you uniquely who he was and what he wanted to do. So today what we're gonna do is as we look at the third miracle John recorded, he's actually going to invite me and you as the readers to take a step back and say, well, wait a minute. Can we really still believe that miracles happen? Do we still have this worldview that miracles happen? Uh, and I think from our perspective, we could you know, look back to people in the first century and say, well, sure, they believed miracles could happen. And we might have some reasons. Well, they believed miracles could happen. Why? Because, well, they were superstitious. Weren't people in the first century just so full of superstition that they were ready to believe anything that was told to them? And you know, when I think of superstition, I think that the smallest details in your life that seem inconsequential, if, if you're superstitious, you assign them some big divine plan that's orchestrating everything. And just on the topic of superstition also, I just have to say this, that the reason that the Vikings haven't won a Super Bowl is because there's a Packers fan out there somewhere who confiscated a pair of lucky Viking socks and they've been washing them every week. Now, if you're meeting with your growth group this week, maybe you can talk about your own superstitions as silly as they may sound and maybe you would say, I'm not superstitious, I'm just a little stitious. But there's that part in all of us where we look at the details of life and we try to assign some great divine plan to the littlest, smallest things. I hit two green lights in a row yesterday and I was thinking, God must be smiling on me. There, there must be something I did to line up everything where I'm hitting these green lights. So superstition is where you look at the tiniest details of life and you ascribe some divine, huge, godly purpose to them. So of course, people in the first century were believing these miracles. They thought everything was somehow connected to some divine plan. And there's another thing too. Of course, they believed in miracles because they were super religious. They needed religion back then because they didn't understand the way the world worked. You know, a lot of people view religion as a way to kind of fill in the gaps of what we don't understand. 
But today we have science, we have reason, we don't need super religion because we have super computers. And as, as you think about it, you say, well, of course, in the first century, they were more likely to believe in miracles because they were super religious people. But here's the reason why I bring these two things up. When John recorded his third miracle, the third miracle that he wanted to record about Jesus, he picked a miracle that actually addressed both of these things. Were there superstitious people in the first century? Yes, there were, just like there are today. Were there super religious people in the first century? Absolutely, just like there are today. But with the third miracle that John recorded, he shows us something that is completely unexpected. He shows us how the superstitious people totally missed the miracles and the super religious people totally denied the miracles. And here's one big thing that we're gonna see today. It's gonna help us navigate what to do when we find it hard to believe that these miracles could really happen. As, as we get started though, I just wanna give you one kind of bigger view of how John wrote his book. And just know this, the way John recorded it, he didn't want to you know, just connect with superstitious people. He didn't design his book to connect with them, nor did he design his book to connect with super religious people. In fact, he didn't really design his book to be popular. As much as we would be skeptical about the idea of miracles in a natural world, people in the first century were exactly the same. When they would have heard this account that John was writing, they would have been skeptical. Like, what do you mean he healed people? What do you mean he walked on water? That's a little far-fetched. People in the first century recognized you don't just speak to someone to heal them and you don't just walk out onto the lake and pretend to not sink. This would have challenged people in his day as much as it challenged people in our day. So here's the important thing to remember when it comes to John and even really all the other accounts of Jesus' life. But John did not write what was believable. He wrote what was true. He was not worried about writing something that would please people. If, if he was interested in that, he would have just wrote an account of how Jesus loved everybody and accepted everybody and you know, challenged people to make their lives better. And that would have been a popular seller in his day. But instead, he challenged people with these seven miracles. Miracles that challenge us even to this day. So today we're gonna to look at this third miracle at how it addresses the skeptics, how it addresses the supernatural, how it addresses the people who are superstitious, even how it addresses the super religious. And here's what I hope you can take out of this message when we leave today. It's an answer for this. What do you do when it's easier to not believe? What do you do when it's easier just to not believe that a miracle happened? When it's easier to explain away how he fed 5,000 people? Or when it's easier to just explain away, he didn't really walk on water, he was kind of on the shore and his disciples didn't know where he was. And what do you do when it's easier to not believe? And this third miracle John records helps us navigate it. So we're gonna jump right into John chapter five where this miracle begins. And the disclaimer is we're gonna work through the miracle and see what Jesus did. But this miracle is just a setup for something so much bigger. So just keep that in mind. There's the miracle, but then there's 
what comes after is so much bigger. So John begins this way in chapter five. So sometime later, which you know for him could be months, could be a year, it's, it's a long time, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals when it was customary for many people to go to Jerusalem. And now John kind of steps back and fills in the reader with some details that we wouldn't be familiar with. He says, now there is in Jerusalem near the sheep gate, a pool. And not just like a chlorine pool, you know, kind of like a hotel pool, but this was kind of a natural, naturally occurring pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. I'm not sure exactly how big this was, but John saw fit to ascribe it a number because it was big. Five colored, colored, covered colonnades, which I think could make a song, five colored colonnades. And the point was, John was saying, there was plenty of space here for people to gather. This was the first century equivalent of an overpass. So John goes on, here's, here's what would happen. Many people, a great number of disabled people used to lie there. They would just gather, they would accumulate. The blind, the lame, the paralyzed, the, the people who could not make a living on their own and had no place to go. And then I'm, I'm just gonna put this in really small font, but there's a, a number four here. I'm gonna skip that for now. The one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. So, so just picture this large covered area, sheltered from the storms, sheltered from weather, sheltered from the sun, and here there would gather many, many, many people. And John just invites you to look at one of them. There's this one man, an invalid, who perhaps can't walk, perhaps there's something wrong with him, we're not told what it was, but he had been in this condition for 38 years. Now, the reason I skipped over this little number four is because there is no verse four if you look at your Bible and read through John chapter five. It goes straight from verse three to verse five. And that's because they didn't know how to count back then. (laughs) They knew how to count. The long story behind this is that back in about 1550, they took a full the, the full Bible as it was put together and um, the verse numbers and the chapter numbers were added. So when John recorded this, he didn't put number three, number four, number five. This was added centuries, centuries, centuries later. And included with this numbering of the verses were several manuscripts that were kind of questionable. You know, our, our um, version of the Bible is taken from a variety of copies of what John wrote. And there were only a few copies that had verse four in it. And we're gonna see why in just a moment. So back in the 1500s, when they numbered the Bible and gave verses, they included verse four and gave it a number. Whereas today, we're pretty sure verse four wasn't part of what John originally wrote. But the reason the scribes later added verse four was to help give us some context for what was going on near this pool in Jerusalem. More on that in a second. That's why we're skipping verse four. We'll come back to it in a second. But here's verse six, and here's what happens. So when Jesus is walking through this area and he sees many, many, many people, just with all sorts of problems, he saw this one man lying there and learned, literally, having known, having known that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get better? Do you want to get well? 
This is incredible because Jesus is about 30 years old, 31 years old at this time. And so this man has been suffering for longer than Jesus has been alive on this earth. And Jesus walks up to him. Do you want to be well? I think that's a silly question, but the answer to this question will reveal quite a lot. In essence, Jesus was asking him, what can I do to help? You got me, got these 12 guys following me. Can't get rid of them. They just keep following me everywhere. Do you want to be well? What can we do to help? Just imagine this. What have you been wrestling with for a while? A physical thing, a relational thing, a financial thing. It's just been this load, this burden on you. And Jesus were to come up to you and say, do you want to get rid of that? What would you say to him? What you say to him depends on who you think he is. So just get this. This, what John refers to as an invalid, this this sick man who can't move well, said this. Verse seven, sir, the invalid replied, I, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. To which we would say, wait, what? What is this stirring and what's going on here? So here's where I believe as scribes were copying down this, this book that John wrote. They said, we need to insert something so that more people know what's going on here in this section. Because without it, like, what do you mean get first into the pool once it's stirred? And so here's where verse four comes into play. Here's how verse four sets it up. So a great number of disabled people used to lie around in this area near the pool. And here's the part that's in verse four. They waited for the moving of the waters. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. As I think about that, there's only one word to describe this. Superstitious. There was this naturally occurring pool, and there was something going on underneath the ground that caused bubbles or whatever to shake up the water. But the people in that time saw this as some divine act. There must be a hidden angel taking a bath in the pool as we speak. And they believed that only the first person who would get to that water after this weird, mysterious disturbance would be cured. Like the water would be holy water, but only for one person. And it was this superstition that people had. And people would lie around the pool waiting, waiting, waiting. Maybe it would do it once a week, maybe once a month. We're not sure what the frequency of these disturbances. But they had this superstition that if they could only get in there first, they could be healed. So Jesus comes up to this man. What, what, what can we do to help? Well, I've got no one to help me into the water. Everyone keeps beating me there and I've been trying for 38 years. Could you stick around? Maybe leave Bartholomew here for a while. If the water gets stirred, maybe he can help me beat everybody else this next time. You see, sometimes we don't even have a context for what to ask God for because we're so focused on the wrong solution. This man by the pool thought he had a solution and he thought Jesus could help. But Jesus had a different solution for him. 
Get this, John chapter five, verse eight. Then Jesus said to him, get up. This is the same Greek word that's used for situations where people were raised from the dead. Lazarus was raised up. Jesus would be raised up. Now Jesus commands this man who can't get up, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. Jesus did not pull something out of him that was already there, but with his command, get up, he also delivered the ability to obey that command. Keep that in mind. When God gives you a command, when he gives you an invitation, he also delivers with it the ability to do whatever he's commanding or inviting you to do. We wouldn't look at this invalid and say, wow, what an amazing job you did today. You've been working so hard for 38 years and finally your hard work is paying off. No, this was the command and the invitation of Jesus. And along with that command was delivered the ability to obey it. So Jesus could have done this differently. He could have, you know, actually commanded an angel of the Lord to come down and play in the water for a little bit. And then Jesus could take him down in there and say, hey, look, you're healed, you're cured, you're welcome. Jesus could have played along with his superstition, but instead he denied it. And that's the important thing we need to see about Jesus' miracles. His miracles denied the worldview of superstitious people. He did not grant them this idea that their little practices or habits could somehow change the divine plan and make God rearrange things on their behalf. Rather, it was simply this, that Jesus was here. God came to dwell with us. And his miracles left no space for superstitious beliefs because there was simply God with us right here. And I'm not sure what this looks like for you. I think some people are just a little bit more disposed toward seeing interconnectedness in a lot of things. And we might assign some divine plan to some little circumstance in life. What the miracles of Jesus demonstrate for us is that ultimately there was one big goal that Jesus was working toward for you. And it wasn't to give you green lights on your way to work. It was to open up the door to death so that you could pass through to eternal life. Focusing on the superstitious short-term only gets you so far. Jesus denied that kind of worldview and instead placed himself as the one who controls all things. So that was the miracle part, and that's what Jesus did. But like I said before, this miracle just set the stage for something greater and bigger to happen. Verse nine, it goes on. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath, which for the Jewish custom would have been the Saturday, the last day of the week. It was supposed to be a day of rest. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, we're so happy for you. No, they said, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. And here we see the super religious people enter the scene as they are now confronted with the fact that a man had been healed. There had been a miracle. And do they embrace it? Do they embrace the idea of a miracle happening? Absolutely not. The super religious are too focused on their own rules and traditions. You are breaking 
the Sabbath. And so the man replies, he said, but, but, but hold on, hold on, hold on. The man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. And so I, I got up and I figured if he told me to carry my mat, I better carry my mat. So here I am. It's not my fault. I'm just doing as I'm told. I just work here. And so they asked him, okay, okay. You, you claim this is someone else's fault. So who, who is it? Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? We need to have a conversation with him. Not because you can walk, but because you're carrying your mat. And here's how I know that this miracle, it, I mean, a lot of Jesus' miracles almost require faith. We talked about this last week, how a lot of times miracles either invite faith or they require faith in order for them to work, for them to happen. But that's not the case here. I know that because of what happens next. The man who was healed had no idea who it was because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. He had no idea that this was even Jesus of Nazareth, much less the one who claimed to be God with us. To him, Jesus was just a stranger in the crowd, a kind person who came to offer help one day. He didn't have faith that Jesus could help him. He, he didn't even know who Jesus was. And I think there's a big lesson in us, for us in this, that God doesn't require faith for him to do what he needs to do. Sometimes even when you're lacking faith or in the middle of disbelief, God can still do what he needs to do. Jesus, in this moment, healed the man who didn't even know who he was. And now this man is talking about his experience with the Jewish leaders. So he had no idea who it was. And so they kind of end the conversation. They kind of let the man go with the warning. Like, All right, don't let it happen again. You, you know better next time. And then John kind of fast forwards a little bit. Maybe, maybe a few hours. We're not sure. But here's what we do know is that later Jesus found him at the temple. And I, I can't help but wonder if maybe there's something there that this man knew this was an act of God, and he knew where he needed to be. But he was at the temple, and he said to him, hey, look at you. Look at you. Just look at you. You're all better. You're well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. And this is, I, I, I can't help but giggle when I read it, because on the one hand, there's joy about physical restoration, but Jesus has to focus on the real reason he came. This miracle was just a side dish to the forgiveness he wanted this man to experience. Repent. Turn from your sin. Find my forgiveness. Something worse may happen, not you're going to be stuck by a pool for 38 years. I think that's about as, worse as, as bad as it can get for any human being. But the worst part is more about eternity. Turn from your sin. Repent. Or you will experience something much worse than you've been experiencing for the last 38 years. And so as John wraps up this section, by the way, if you have time this week, read the rest of John chapter five because there's an extended conversation Jesus has with these religious, super religious people and it gives him a chance to share who he is. We don't have time to work through all of it, but we do have time just for one more verse. This is the conclusion. Like John says, this is what it was all about. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. This was the third miracle. It got a lot of attention and he started 
to be persecuted. They, they were questioning him. They were trying to trap him. And ultimately, it would be the last miracle that kind of sealed the deal. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, sorry, that's a huge spoiler, but that, that's the seventh miracle. When he raised Lazarus from the dead, it was then that the super religious said, that's enough. We need to kill him. So if you say that people in the first century were more naturally disposed to believe in miracles because they were super religious, John would argue otherwise. Super religious people who saw direct evidence of these miracles rejected him. They said there must be another explanation. This man is working against our agenda. We need to hold the power. We need to set the terms. We have our traditions that we need to defend. We have this plan of becoming a great nation again. Jesus is working against all of it. So they didn't just reject Jesus. They rejected the very notion that his miracles could actually be from God. So this is the third thing we see. Jesus' miracles defied the agenda of super religious people. They did not make him popular with them. And as you put all these things together, I think it just gives us an opportunity to really see that when it comes to the way John wrote his book, he did not write it in a way that he thought would be believable by the people around him. Rather, what he wrote, he was convinced, was true. And it was true not just because it appealed to the people who were superstitious, this invalid by the pool was a demonstration of that. And it didn't appeal to the super religious because as we saw, they were rejecting him on account of his miracles. Rather, John said, I just need to record these things, not because it's believable, but because it is true. And so that after you've done your research and looked at what John recorded and what Luke recorded and what Matthew recorded and what Mark recorded. As you look at all these different perspectives of Jesus' life, John says, I hope you come to this conclusion that what we share with you isn't necessarily believable, but it is true. Now, I just want to share one quick verse towards the end of chapter 5 where Jesus is talking to the super religious and he's just getting really at the point of what he was all about. Jesus said, very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, the father, they have eternal life. They will not be judged, but he has crossed over from death to life. This is what John was about not convincing superstitious people or super religious people, but by inviting people to experience something totally new, something for everyday people to believe and know that Jesus really is the Christ. So here's the miracle in this. I know that when it comes to, there's gonna be times when it's easier to not believe than to believe. And people in the first century would have said the exact same thing. It's so easy to just not believe this and find some scientific or rational explanation. Maybe it's a myth. Maybe it's a legend. It's embellished. It's so easy to not believe. But here's what we learned from the story of this man who was healed. When God invites you to believe, he delivers with that invitation the ability 
to believe. When he invites you to believe, he also delivers the ability for you to believe. Because what we all know is that if belief in Jesus, belief in who he is, if it's up to what we can conjure up from inside of us, our belief will fall short. No commitment you make can hold on to the supernatural truth of who Jesus is. But when Jesus told a man to get up, carry his mat and walk, he was able to do it. And so when Jesus says to me and to you, believe in me and you will have life, you are able to do that. This is what we often call the, the supernatural power of God in us to work in us that gift of faith that simply holds God to his promises and embraces the truth of who he is. So I hope this is something that you walk away with today, that when it comes to the miracles of Jesus, I get it. There's gonna be times when it's easier to not believe. But John, if he were standing here today, he would say, I don't want you to go down that route. I know to tell a person who is lame to walk after 38 years, that's incredible. But the same is true of us when it comes to our faith. What God invites you to do, he gives you the ability. He invites you to believe and he delivers with that invitation the ability to do so. So that you can be crossed over from death to life. So the question we were looking at, what do you do when it's easier to not believe? What do you do when it's easier to not believe? I think our natural tendency is to suspend what we're trying to believe and instead embrace the others. But I'm gonna challenge you with something different this week. When it's easier to not believe, would you instead suspend your unbelief? Suspend your disbelief. Give yourself permission just for an hour, for a day, for a week to suspend what it is that's difficult to believe and just live as if it is true, to embrace what God declares as true and see what God does in the aftermath. I'm sure for that invalid who was by the pool, it was complete nonsense for him to even move a muscle to try to get up. But because Jesus said so, he did. Would you suspend your disbelief? Would you suspend your unbelief? And instead, receive the invitation God has for you. Believe in me, and you will receive life. I hope you can come back next week because we're gonna start looking at some bigger miracles that aren't so subtle, aren't so narrow, but we're gonna see how hundreds, thousands of people are now starting to see what it is that Jesus does. And each miracle was a sign of who he was and what he came to do. Let's close today with a prayer. Dear Father in heaven, as we read through the accounts of Jesus' life, we see a lot of things that can be difficult to believe. And when John wrote these, I think he knew that. Not everybody would easily believe that miracles just happen. People don't just get healed at a command and they don't just walk on water because they want to. These things were far-fetched in his day as much as they are in ours. And yet John wrote them because they were true. When it comes to the way that we think about our faith and our belief, I pray that we would step away from a version of faith that's all about us and what we choose and what we do and 
the decisions we make, but rather make faith about your power. You invite us to believe, and along with that invitation comes the ability to embrace Jesus and who he is. Give us the ability to suspend our doubts, our unbelief, our disbelief, so that we can embrace what it means to live by faith and enjoy the life that Jesus came to bring. Surround us with people in our lives that can help us navigate through difficult seasons so that even if we're not in a place where we're sure what we know, that they can tell us about the one whom they know and that we can encourage each other through it. Bless all of us as we grow in our faith, in our understanding this week, and as we hold you to your word to give us that relationship and that faith in Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.